Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, rotor operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long term, not just survive. I couldn't have told you anything about beliefs, to be honest, before this work commenced. But we have beliefs about everything. We have beliefs about ourselves. We have beliefs about leadership. We have beliefs about business, beliefs about money. Based on our beliefs, we take action. And it turns out from my study, every action that we take pretty much is based on our beliefs other than an instinctive response. Certainly, you can say that there's habits, but the habits were also based on beliefs. So without changing the belief, it's hard to really change the habit. Based on our action, the people around us form beliefs. Based on their beliefs, as you can see, they take action. And what blew my mind when I started learning this is that about 90, 95% of the time, their action will reinforce the original belief. For a third time, Please welcome back Ari Weinschweig, co-founder of Singerman's Community of Businesses, which is located in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And anyone that has been listening into the show or signed up for the newsletter have seen me talk a lot about Singerman's and referencing the great work they do and guiding you through some of their materials because they are a business that have found a different way to build a business that not only have positive impact on them as a business, but also the people that's involved, the society they part of, and in the end, also mother nature. So I'm super excited to have Ari back. And this time we're gonna be talking about, you know, the power of beliefs in business. We have before visit managing yourself during the pandemic. And we also talked about how do you build a great business and connected with that, the power of visioning. And today's conversation, we actually start out with actually revisiting a bit what's happened in the post-pandemic world at Singerman's, and they have had doing some really interesting work around actually succession, the business, the day that Ari and Paul no longer is able to run the business anymore or retire for that sake. And they call the it the future belongs to the employees. So we talk about that succession planning and how they are now handing the business over the employees to ensure that actually this Singerman's will continue the days after Ari and Paul is no longer at the helm. And there's some really interesting learning about the approach to that and actually where they got their inspiration from. And then we're going to have a very deep dive into the power of beliefs in business. We start out with talking with Ari about why he wrote the book and what his learnings has been. We talk about what are beliefs and why they're so important both in life and business, how they form and how do they actually impact us and organizations and groups you're part of. And how do we actually change them? And how do we get started with that? And we talk about their incredible work of writing a statement of beliefs where there are 34 beliefs about how they see business, how they approach the world as an organization. We talk about how they use that work and how they actually implement it right now. And then we also talk about how do we actually get started with this? How do we actually get your team around this and actually start writing a statement of beliefs? And Ari shares very practical about how they approach this. And we also talk a bit about, you know, some of the work Ari have done besides the statement of beliefs, the books he's written and how it's actually impacted other people beyond Singermans. And there is also taking question in as we talk from some of the listeners and some of the guests that's previously been on the show who wanted to ask Ari some questions. We'll also be talking about the ecosystem of organization in connection with that and actually how you should see your organization almost like a forest or a garden with trees or plants where you're nourishing the soil and the roots and much more on that. And I think it's a brilliant analogy of how to build a great organization. 
If you want to get more insights on what Maverick leaders do and know, as well as more backstage info on the show, sign up for the newsletter Maverick Talks, where there will be lots of extra materials also from uh, Singermans very regularly there. So that will be five minutes each week that could change your leadership and business forever. Find the link in the sign up in the show notes or on the hospitalitymavericks.com. There's lots of great examples in this conversation of how you actually can use beliefs to actually build an organization that would potentially, even you as the owner, outlast you and make positive impact on not just your people, society, but also the planet. Enjoy. Today, we are welcoming Ari back again. Not for just the first time, the second time, but the third time we're going to be talking about what they're doing over at Singermans. And as some of you can remember, because I know, because I asked you before this interview, if there was any question you want to ask Ari about, was that we explored managing ourselves the first time or snippets of it, because it's a substantial piece of work. And then we talked about building a great business, especially visioning last time. And then I knew we had to go back. And I think I already made a little note to Ari last time we talked, we need to go talk about the power of beliefs. Yeah, that this is an incredible book. I don't think I've found anything else in business. And on the back of it, as you will find as well, there's people like Danny Meyer, Adam Grant, saying that this piece of work Ari have done and when they've done a singer man is actually a very good way of making it very practical to understand how you get working with your beliefs so we'll come back to that but first of all welcome to the show Ari it's a great pleasure to have you it's again. great it's great to be here one day we're gonna have coffee in person I look forward to it we will actually because it's quite funny as I was asking the audience about questions as they were sending them in the, there was a couple of people in you get us that can we make an exhibition to Ann Arbor and visit Singerman. I said, yeah, we'll probably be able to do that because that's yeah. also on, on my agenda. But we'll come back to that and that will be definitely, then we may be doing something in okay. live. But we could also talk about trying to set something up in the UK to yeah. come teach. So yeah, we'll it'll be great. Both. We do both. Yeah. So you can hear everybody out there. There's already something in the pipeline here. So one of my first questions was always really interesting because I follow you vividly and talk about it and people should go and look. And then there was something happening in the post-pandemic world at Singermans. And what I would like to hear about, Ari, before we dive into the power of belief, is more like you started talking about what is the transition for the future is going to look like and how we're going to make that succession happen. And you called that future belongs to the employees. Can you talk a bit about that and what the whole idea is about that? Because that's not a traditional way of yeah. handing over your business. Yeah. Well, without knowing you were going to ask me that, coincidentally, I wrote my e-news yesterday, which would have been, I guess, late last night in the UK, about succession. So I'm sure you'll post the link to the essay. You know, my, I guess, as I said in there, I mean, when we opened the business in 1982, I was not thinking about succession. And I don't feel terrible about not having thought about succession. It wasn't really my issue. That said with the benefit of hindsight, which I don't know that I would have listened to when I was 25 either, but it doesn't hurt to start early just to think about what you want to create. And you mentioned visioning. So really this is about how are you going to implement your vision for the future? And in this case, in the project that you're talking about, we call Zingerman's Perpetual Purpose Trust or ZPT. And it really got me thinking about 50 years from now, which obviously I won't be there for, but to really be thinking far beyond our own impact as individuals in the moment and really what we want to create in the community and in the organization down the road. And there's what, like I said in the essay yesterday, there's no right answer to it. The key is just to arrive at an answer that's thoughtfully created by each of us. And in many things in life and in particular in succession, and it may be different in the UK a bit than it is in the US, but there's sort of these four or five standard models that everybody just goes along with because nobody even realizes that there's other ones. And generally in life, that doesn't work that well. Generally in life, we do, we are 
at our most alive, I think, when we're creating the life that we want to live. That may involve some pieces that were pulled from elsewhere, of course, but it's also when we do it in a way that's unique to us, just like you're doing with this program. You're hardly the only person doing a podcast in the food world, but you're trying to do it in a way that's true to who you are, and that makes it a lot more interesting, I think. So this succession work is really what do we want to create as an organization? How do we want Zingerman's to be in the world 50 years, 80 years from now? And then how do we go about doing that? Yeah, and that's super interesting because in principle, you're talking about how does Zingerman exist without you and Paul? And how do you actually continue the mission, the vision yeah. you've set out? And how do you elaborate that? So, so how did that, how, did, how is the structure very shortly? Because of yeah. course we're going to share the yeah. essay, but how yeah. is that, who will then own the business? Yeah. Who will, who would actually be leading the business? What is the idea from there? Yeah. Well, there's a couple things. There's a piece I wrote back in, I think, April also about governance that might be of help. But so one of the interesting things about succession, which I didn't realize we were doing succession at the time we did it, but back in 1994, so we were 12 years in business and we wrote our 2009 vision, which was the first time that we had written a vision. I think we talked about that in the other session that you and I did. And when we started that work to create what we call the Zingerman's Community of Businesses, at that time, we agreed to propose to and then agreed to basically run the organization overall by consensus of what we call the partners group. So it was me and Paul plus the managing partners. So in 1994, mm. I don't even remember, it was six or seven people. Now it's, I think, 22 people. So basically, we created governance for the organization. And so... It's not where the decision gets made for the price of a Zing Train seminar or for whether we roll out a new loaf of bread at the bakehouse. Those are done locally within the business. And you have, as you probably remember, I'm sure, and others may as well, we have managing partners in each business. But this is for if we were going to open a new business, if we were going to, as we'll talk about beliefs, when we adopted our statement of beliefs at Zingerman's two years ago last month, It's agreed upon at the partners group level. So we use consensus for that. And in a sense, it was succession because it was no longer dependent on me and Paul for a decision to be made. And so I would suggest in hindsight, and I'm not saying this is judgmentally, but most businesses are still run like monarchies. You're in England. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily evil. People are often benevolent monarchs and they're working very hard to create something positive for the people that they employ. But that said, the decisions are still made by the king and queen or king and king or queen and queen or whatever gender you want to use. But the point is that it all ascends to the top of the hierarchy. And so what this was a flattening of that hierarchy. And obviously, Paul and I have hopefully an important role to play. But if we disappear If we had disappeared in 1995, there was still a body of decision makers that knew what to do. Um, mm -hmm. So that that's one piece. That will continue apace. And so that is unchanged by this new program. The new program, which it's new to the world, but it's we've been working on it for a long time, is only about the intellectual property, which is also called in the business school world, the brand. It's the name Zingerman's, the use of it, the marketing tools, et cetera, et cetera. And what the Perpetual Purpose Trust is a program that it's actually more common in the UK. It's very unusual here in the US. I think there's now like still less than 50 that are doing this, but I actually learned about it from a British company called the Scott Bader Commonwealth. And I learned about it from reading E.F. Schumacher's book, Small is Beautiful, which was written 50 years ago this year, actually. It's, it's quite an amazing book. And it's not the main point of the book, but there's a lot of good stuff in the book. But about, I don't know, two thirds of the way through, he wrote about Scott Bader. And I'm certainly not from there, so I'm sure you could get somebody from there who could give you an infinitely more accurate and more detailed description of what they did. But going from memory, he, Mr. Bader came from Switzerland, so like you, an immigrant to the UK, got an hourly job, didn't really like it, ended up starting his own business and I think 1923. And so he was quite successful. They grew the business. And then in 1951, he had 
already, you know, whatever, had almost 30 years in business. And he decided essentially, this is again, my telling of it, not theirs, but that he wanted to pass on the business to the staff. Hmm. But rather than doing like here in the U.S., we have a program called ESOP or Employee Stock Ownership Plan, yeah. which is a government sponsored program that gives a, a I'm not an expert, but gives some good tax breaks to the owners as they move stock shares to the business, to the employees. But one of the prop, one of the many problems, in my view, of that kind of program is it can still be sold. So we could do that, but then we're Paul and I can be gone. And five years later, the employees get a great offer from Amazon and they decide to take the offer. And now what we didn't want to happen will happen. It could happen anyway. So what I liked with Scott Bader's work is they created a perpetual, we call perpetual trust. So it just goes on forever. Company is in essence held in trust, but the benefit as he designed it goes mostly to the staff. And it can't be, and it can't be sold. So the easiest way, and then I'll let you ask a million questions. It's for me, it's metaphorically like creating an old growth forest rather than we planted a forest 40 years ago, it's grown, let's clear cut it, take the money and go to Brighton and retire. So that's really what it's about over time, more and more of the ownership of the intellectual property will transfer to the staff that own a share. So that goes to your original question. Well, that's super interesting, actually, because also before we go, we're already touching on the beliefs works, I think. But there was a question that actually came from a, you know, a shared friend, but also has been a guest here on the show and somebody you know really well, Bo Bellingham. He said, uh -huh. ask Ari about the organizational ecosystem, because I've read yeah. your essays on that. And it, it goes yeah. really well into the forest analogy yeah. uh, or yeah. garden analogy. So, so what is the ambition with when you talk about creating a forest and the garden the stays? Yeah. Well, the for the old growth forest, I you know, for me, in a good way, over 40 years, one years, 41 and a half years, we've become very integrated into the town and we have a very strong commitment to the town. Over and over again, at least in the US, you can watch one can watch models or examples of where the business was sold. Not out of malice. The owners are my age. They want to get out. They've worked hard. Some the, Somebody wants to buy it. Not always, but often those are much bigger companies who have the resources and the cash to do the buying. They buy it. They say they share values. They even believe, was come back to, that they share values, but they don't really. And then over time, also, the person who might have been the CEO at the time it was per the company was bought out leaves. And now you have a new CEO who's not completely unaligned, but they're more over to here. And then it's over here. And then pretty soon decisions that were once made one way start to be made in a very different way. And so it really undercuts what the company was about because the new owner they don't even know they're doing it, but they're making mm. decisions that are not in alignment. And often the businesses end up closing. Often the soul is sold out from the business and things that were local treasures become 300 store chains. <laughs> Again, not out of malice, but it just... So it's it's sort of like in the U.S., like I just like nobody goes, you know, the Grand Canyon is so beautiful. Let's carve out like six more. Mm. Think of all the tourist money we could bring in. Let's make a Grand Canyon here in Michigan. Even the thought is absurd. But yeah, that's what I would suggest that this is the best businesses in my belief. Coming back to that. And I know not everyone will agree, but are of the place. I'm sure in Brighton that there's a shop that's particularly unique to the town, that the owners live there, that people feel that the customers feel a sense of emotional ownership of the business. They care about it. The business cares about them. It just creates a completely different thing. And so the trust allows it to stay in the ecosystem because if you, I'm not a, I'm a city kid who wouldn't have known any of this growing up, but from my reading, which is 
certainly I'm not a scientist, but from reading about forestry, it's just obvious. Like if you cut an old growth forest down and then plant the same number of trees down the road in a modern industrial forest, the tree count is the same, just like when the government uses jobs created. But one job is not the same as another and one tree is not the same as the other. And so the forest has this huge level of interconnectivity. There's all of these other animals, wildlife, insects, impact on the air quality, the movement of the air, shelter, the rooting of the soil, the health of the soil, the et cetera, et cetera, the bird population. All of these things are part of the forest. When you cut that down and plant exactly the same number of trees five miles down the road, the impact is negatively hugely negative when you cut and it's not replaced by the new forest so anyway long story short having zingermans be here 40 50 60 years from now again long after we're gone but where there's meaningful work in an imperfect of course way but meaningful work created where it's committed to the community etc just seems like a wonderful thing to have in the community yeah, I love that thing about that. You actually, you know, the future belongs to the employees, but also as much as, you know, a respect for the town and Arbor <laughs> and actually keeping these jobs there and actually making sure people have meaningful jobs afterwards. And I love that also in connection with, you know, forests, you know, talking about the planet challenges we have right now in the food system and also in the world with 40 degrees around, actually, we maybe lost some of that respect for the ecosystem. But actually that leads very well, I thought, that question to actually talking about why in the world would you sit down and write a book about the power of beliefs in business? Because when I ordered this book, I actually didn't know what to expect. <laughs> and and I choose, you know, when I had my stint at university and I read business philosophy. So I thought actually it's in that context and value. And it's about something totally different. Can you share a bit that, you know, what yeah. this three-year journey with yeah. incredible piece of work and collecting and then implemented in your own business. Well, thank you. And we're still, I've still learned a lot after the book came out, which we could talk about too. But so early in the book, there's a visual diagram of a self-fulfilling belief cycle. And I read that in Bob and Judith Wright's book, Transformed. <clears throat> you had managing ourselves in your hand. Bob wrote the foreword for managing ourselves. And anyway, when I was reading their book, again, it's not the main point of their book, but it's embedded in the book. And when I read it and I had just honestly never thought about beliefs. And when we talk beliefs here, just for clarity for people listening. Oh, thank you. Nice work. So when we talk beliefs, I'm not really thinking about religion or sports or politics, although those are also beliefs, but I'm really more focused on beliefs about work, beliefs about human beings, beliefs about the quality of tea or coffee, beliefs about the, the ecosystem at large, et cetera, et cetera. So when I read this and I saw it, it blew my mind because as I'll explain, it's a self-fulfilling belief cycle. So just to talk people through it quickly and then you can rest your arm. So at the top, Michael's holding up the book. It says my beliefs. So we all have beliefs uh, and we have literally thousands of them. I had honestly never thought about that at all. So I couldn't have told you anything about beliefs, to be honest, before this work commenced. But we have beliefs about everything. We have beliefs about ourselves. We have beliefs about leadership. We have beliefs about business, beliefs about money. Based on our beliefs, we take action. And it turns out from my study, every action that we take pretty much is based on our beliefs other than an instinctive response. Certainly, you can say that there's habits, but the habits were also based on beliefs. So without changing the belief, it's hard to really change the habit. Based on our action, the people around us form beliefs. Based on their beliefs, as you could see, they take action. And what blew my mind when I started learning this is that about 90, 95% of the time, their action will reinforce the original belief. So the textbook example that I give over and over is if one were to take a job in an organization where the CEO, founder, leader, chairman, whatever, believes training is a waste of time. What action will they take? The obvious answer is they will do no training or at least the bare minimum. What will the people who, who have been hired into that company believe about their future, about the work, et cetera? Mm, not much future. Just do as little as you have to get by while you look for another job that has a better future. 
what kind of work will they do when they hold that belief? Not very good work. And the CEO says something like, thank goodness we didn't waste any money on training. Look how bad these new staff members are. If you flip, if you flip the belief and you take the belief that you have, Michael, or that we have, or probably most people listening have, which is training and learning is a great idea. What do we do? Lots of training. Does everybody use it? No, of course not. But we provide a lot of it. What do many people who work here then start to believe that they start to believing there's a future that they could grow, that we care about them? Is it perfect? No. But most of them start to do better work because when you feel believed in and you care about what you're doing and you believe in that work and the workplace believes in you, you do better work. And we go, wow, this training is awesome. We really should do more. And of course, the sad irony is it's exactly the same workforce in both of those two stories. All The only real difference is the belief of the leader. So this is a self-fulfilling belief cycle. It's going on all day long. When I saw this, I, it blew my mind because I was really struggling with a particular organizational issue. It wasn't gigantic, but it was just an issue around quality. And it was frustrating me. And it involved a lot of people in a lot of our businesses working together or not working together, as the case may be. And when I saw this, because I had tried everything, I had written a vision for it. And we had, you know, diverse work group and all the things that we know how to do. And none of them were working. And when I saw this, I was like, I get it. They're saying that they'll do the work, but they don't really believe in it. And when you don't really believe in the work, you don't do a great job. When you don't do a great job, the people around you start to believe it's not going to work out or that you're the problem. Then mm. it doesn't go well. And that's what was going on. So that cycle initiated my curiosity. And as an awkward, geeky history major, all I mostly know how to do is read books about stuff and try to learn something. And that's what I did. And three or four years later, the 600-page book came out. So the beliefs work has been extremely powerful. We teach it widely within the organization. I just taught it at a conference last week in Iowa. I used to say more casually countries go to war over it, but all you have to do is look at the war in Ukraine, and that's mm. exactly what's going on, is a set of beliefs that Vladimir Putin has that are playing out in a horrific way at the cost of a lot of lives and culture and history and beauty all being destroyed for nothing because of one person and or the people around him's beliefs. So where do beliefs come from? I wouldn't have ever known, but it mm -hmm. turns out they're not genetic. They're all learned. And so because they're all learned, they can all be changed. Well, just because it's really yeah, interesting where, do, where, do, where does beliefs come from? And I think, you know, with what you mentioned, Putin's is everywhere. But and then you and you said it was like, you know, you had this challenge internally in the business that you want to find out. Because yeah. before I read this book, I know I mentioned this to you before, like I also, you know, vision work values, culture books, all that stuff, that in place, and things still didn't really flow as I wanted them. Yeah. Why is it that, you know, just to Doc Taylor, why is it then that you thought it was important to, because when you read this book, there's also a lot of exercises. We'll come back to some of them yeah. in, in a moment. But why is it so important to work with this in business? Because in a way, you, well, you have to increase sales in principle. Yes, but so. here's the thing. If the person working, whatever, the counter, the phone, the computer doesn't believe in the product, follow the cycle. If the staff member believes customers are a pain in the behind, how will they follow the cycle? If you believe customers are kind of annoying and very self-entitled, how will you treat them? Not very well. What will the customer then believe about the business that you're working for? It's not very good. If they believe the business isn't very good, where do they take their business? Somewhere else. So the sales cycle, the cycle is playing out in sales. The cycle is playing out in customer service. The cycle is playing out in people leaving their jobs. I mean, it's playing out all day long. It's playing out in interpersonal relationships. So 
if you have an employee named Billy and Billy believes that another employee named Alex is a jerk, mm-hmm. follow the cycle. It's self-fulfilling. The way that he treats them will be jerky. On they go, right? It, can't, it won't go anywhere positive. So I just started to understand that it's going on all day long. Like if the customers don't believe in us, they're not going to come here. If the customer doesn't believe that our coffee is worth it, they're not going to buy it. So there's literally nothing you can do that doesn't have this work as a part of it. And, you know, you talked a bit about, you know, we're talking a bit about the organization's beliefs, but then I guess if you take the individual, because an organization is a group of people coming together for a shared purpose, a mission. And it seems like you talked about the quality problem you had before. How big is individuals beliefs about their life the way things are really impacting you know an organization hugely so like it's a very common american belief i think probably in britain too but just that asking for help is a sign of weakness yeah that's a good one yeah okay so if you don't ask for help you won't thrive if you interview somebody and say, how do you do with asking for help? No one goes, I'm terrible at it. No, (laughs) I'll never ask for help. No one says that, but deep down I had it too. Like we're social. Many of us are socialized to believe that asking for help is a sign of weakness. So even if intellectually somebody taught you why asking for help is good, but you still hold the belief then you're going to act on it. And when you act that way, it's not going to go well, right? And so this is part of what's happening in Russia. But in coming back to the workplace, I mean, that's just one example. So one of, one of the things, a couple of things to add to the conversation. So between our beliefs and our actions on that cycle, there's a filter. And if people listening are scientists, it's called confirmation bias. If you're just a history major, I just call it a filter, but it's the same thing. We all filter out all of the information that does not fit what we already believe. And we take in the information that supports our belief. So if you believe training is a waste of time, but a new employee goes to the training but doesn't do any better afterwards we go they must be having a hard time in their personal life maybe we didn't teach it very well if the ceo believes training's a waste of time and they agree finally to do one class let's see how it goes and one employee doesn't do anything it's 100 percent proof that it was a waste of energy and money and time so we're all doing this all day long so as i said in the book the saying I'll believe it when I see it Mm. is a hundred percent inaccurate. It needs to be the inverse. I'll see it when I believe it. So when we change what we believe, we see completely different things. And this is true with everything from customer behavior to racism, to women in leadership. So many years ago, I used to live with a surgeon She's an orthopedic surgeon and quite good at what she does. And so I have minor insight into what it's like and to be a woman in the world of surgery, which is historically and stereotypically a fairly male dominated, especially orthopedic. So when the book came out, the head of the OBGYN department here at University of Michigan Hospital, which is quite prestigious, He's a big fan of the business books, right? And so we the book had just come out and I was going to do a book event at the Roadhouse and there was a little one of those table tents on the table, right? So a bunch of his residents, so this is the physicians in training, were in for dinner and they thought, oh, maybe we should, you know, he might be interested. And of course, like, you know, like you had, people don't really understand what a belief would be and why it would be relevant. So I said, they go, well, what can you give us like a 60 second? So having lived with their physicians, having lived with the surgeon, I I was like, okay, let me tell you exactly what it is. If you're in the operating room, and of course it's OBGYN, so in that field, most of them are women. But if, if you're in the operating room and a woman hesitates during the surgery, the surgeon people, 
in the room start to go, she's not decisive. This is why mm -hmm. women can't be good surgeons. <laughs> if it's a male surgeon, and I'm stereotyping, if it's a male surgeon and he hesitates, they go, wow, he's so thoughtful. This is incredible. <laughs> and they just like started laughing and they're like, okay, we're going to buy the book. So it's quite interesting that the belief stuff's going on all day long. And we're seeing the information that's help helping support the beliefs. We're dismissing the information that doesn't fit the beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. So this is why it matters. There's nothing that happens in the workplace or in our lives that's not impacted by it. Yeah. And I guess like what really went at home to me as well, sometime by luck, you've gone back and visited those beliefs and you got those beliefs in the organization change and you set yourself on a new course and people talk about turnaround and typical management books and so on. That's actually where you get into the beliefs, the shared belief system and change things. Yeah, And it's often by luck because you're not aware you actually have to start there. And I think that's the really interesting piece in everything you do. It doesn't matter how clear vision you set out or plan yeah. or resources you have. If you all have different beliefs about the future yeah. or fears yep. within that, yep. and you haven't talked and aligned on that, yeah. that transformation is not really going to happen. No, not at all. And this is one of the essays in the book is about alignment. And so it's the understanding, which I had never had, that our belief system has to be aligned with the vision that we're creating. So you might say, well, how could it not be? Well, here's a good example. You want to move up in the organization, but your inner belief that you may not share widely is that you're not a great leader. It'll never work. Like you'll never grow in the organization as long while you continue to believe that you're not a good leader. Now you might get a little bit of, of a ways through hard work or whatever, but in the long run, it won't work out. If you believe that your boss is a jerk, it's self-fulfilling. So this isn't just working with leaders on staff. It's also true of staff with leaders. So if the staff member believes that the leader is a jerk, or bosses are bad, it's self-fulfilling as well. So this was an understanding that I really never had. And so working to get alignment was a huge thing. When I finished the book, then I started to realize, you know, just what you just said. We have, I don't know, now 30 years plus of since we worked on our, what we call guiding principles or values or ethics. So we had that super clear. We talked on the podcast and you know a lot about the visioning. So we had our vision written. Awesome. 1991, we wrote our mission statement, which is like the North Star in the ecosystem. So we had that clear. So we had all of these things clear, but I realized we didn't have agreement on beliefs. And then the question, of course, comes up, what's the difference between ethics? I mean, between print guiding principles and beliefs. And my response is guiding principles are also beliefs but they're the ethically based ones. But that said, those aren't changing. But then we have this whole other wide array of beliefs that are integral to the health of the organization, but we really don't expect people to hold them. We just get mad when they don't. So what's an example? One is asking for help. One is we believe in our visioning process. It's not like you can't live a good life without writing a vision. It's not unethical not to write one. It's mm. just, it's not unethical not to ask for help. It's just not how we're agreeing to work. And so a few years after the book came out, five years, whatever, we started the work to write a statement of beliefs. And we spent about two years working on that using our bottom line change process, which is another organizational recipe and another pamphlet. And we could do a whole nother conversation on that. But anyway, after a couple of years, we arrived at a set of, I think there's 34 beliefs that are in the booklet. It can't see them on there, but they're listed. And these are the beliefs that we've agreed to use in the organization. It's a job performance expectation. What you believe out of work is none of my business. So it's not for me to tell you that out of work, you need to ask for help. Just like I can't tell you and I'm not going to tell you what kind of coffee you should drink outside of work. But when you come to work at Zingerman's Coffee Company, if you grew up with Folgers, we don't let you bring Folgers in on the days you work. <laughs> 
you you still work with the quality of beans and the brewing methods and the weight of coffee per water used, whatever that we're dependent on. If you come to Zingerman's Roadhouse, where macaroni and cheese is a very big part of the regional American cooking that we do, you know, every almost everybody we hire, me included, grew up with macaroni and cheese. For me, it came out of the box, right? So at the Roadhouse, we use uh, macaroni from the Marche region in Italy, from the only farmstead pasta maker in, the, in Italy, the Mancini family. It's incredibly good pasta. Certainly not the only one, but there's maybe a dozen great pastas. So it a, makes a remarkable difference in the quality of the macaroni and cheese because it's very good wheat. It's bronze dye extruded to get the rough surface you want. It's dried slowly over 50 hours instead of five hours at high temperature, changes, the, et cetera, et cetera. So I just ask, when you, if we hire you as a line cook at the roadhouse, do you just bring the noodles that your mother used? And everybody goes, no, of course not. I'm like, okay, well, it's the same with the beliefs. So if you grew up with the belief that whatever, old people are idiots or women can't be leaders or even minor things, it's not for me to judge you as a human being. But while you're at work, I need you to believe that women can be great leaders and act accordingly. I think it's very interesting. You said, you know, the 34 beliefs. Do you share those as part of your recruitment? No, it's a secret. And then if they can't, no. Yeah, of course we share them. I go over it in the new staff orientation, which there's an essay in the back of the book that you're holding. And I don't teach them all the beliefs, but I reference the book, the booklet and tell them why we have it and ask them to go through and read it. There's about two thirds of the booklet is a page for each belief with examples of what it looks like when we're doing it and what it looks like when we're not doing it. And that's been super helpful because it's very tangible. I've done all the things we're not supposed to do and I've done all the things we're supposed to do. But, it, you know, just like anything else, if you don't know what it looks like when it's not going well, it's hard to get it right. Conversely, if you don't know what it looks like when it's going right, it's hard to get it right too. So, this is, you know, we're two years in, it takes three, four years to really change the culture. I think it's going quite well, all in all, but it's not like everybody here has memorized all of them, but culture doesn't change by command. Culture changes slowly. So in the context of the ecosystem, which you asked about earlier, or Bo Burlingham asked you to ask, and I just quoted him in the e-news yesterday, uh, beliefs are like the root system. Right. And so we don't see them. Like when you hire somebody, people don't bring, they bring their resume or in the UK, they bring their CV, but they don't bring like, here's my list of my top 20 beliefs. Like no one's ever come in for a job interview with that, but they have them. Yeah. <laughs> right. So if you're 40 years old and your parents taught you something, even subconsciously at one the roots have been growing for 39 years. They're not coming out that quickly, right? So we're hiring people. They don't even know they have beliefs. They don't even know what the beliefs are. And whatever they have isn't going to be removed quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes people are all for quality, but they believe that asking for help is a bad idea or a sign of failure. Under pressure, they'll never ask for help. We need to coach them, teach them, but at least sharing the expectation from the beginning, yeah. it's a lot easier to move forward. So I think it's been huge. Yeah, and I guess also if you got your hands on that before you apply for the job and saw your beliefs and said, yeah. I don't believe in that, so I'm not going to go there and apply for a job. Yes. But that's good for you and good for them. Yeah, and certainly for me, if I'm interviewing, which I don't do that much anymore, but if I'm interviewing anybody for an upper-level position, I give them this to take home after the interview because hmm. for a few dollars of cost. Yeah. Now, you know, no one's ever come back and said what you said, but I think for real people that we want to hire, it's more about attracting the good people than it is about yeah. pushing away the not good ones. So if I, if you came to Zingerman's and you were in, of course, most people are interviewing in three or four different places. Yeah. It's normal. Well, I guarantee you, this is the only job interview you're going to have where you get this. Yeah. 
And if you, Michael, were coming to interview here and I gave you this, I guarantee it would increase the odds that you would want to take the job here. Yeah, because I guess that also what it helps people is that I'm actually making the right decision because yeah. I'm going to join a group of like-minded people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful. But how do you create this? You know, because you, is that you and Paul to sit down and no, 34, no, no. because you sure. talked about alignment before, but right. I think it's very important for people to understand how do you actually, you said it took two years. Yeah. So the hierarchical way would be me and Paul go climb the organizational version of Mount Sinai. And then we return with the beliefs, but yeah, we don't work that way. It's, and I honestly, it would be better to have them created that way and share them widely than to not share them. Okay, interesting. Because yeah. when you we all have them, the hierarchical boss has them too. It's just we don't tell people what they are, and then we yell at them when they fall short. And this is going on all the time. So true story in the hospitality world will be relevant. So we have a little this is a book I wrote many years ago about customer service. And there is a, our version of a little thing that somebody taught me decades ago. We call it the 5505 rule, 55 slash 05. So we open, if we say we open at eight, we actually open at 755. And if we say we close at eight, we actually close at 805. So mm -hmm. this allows people who are slightly early are thrilled that they can get in. It allows people who drove across town, like I got stuck in a, in a traffic today. I, I wouldn't have made it, but often people are two minutes late and they drove 20 minutes to get to your business. I, I actually had this happen to me as I needed something at the drugstore and I left work at 9.55. There's two drugstores within minutes of where I was. One was already closed at 10.56. I'm like, okay, I might be able to make it to the other one. I get there at 10.58, they're closed too. They were supposed to be open till 11, sorry. So how do I feel? I'm super frustrated. Now, I didn't have mm. particular loyalty to those places anyway, but if I did, I got to tell you, that loyalty would be challenged. Mm. <laughs> anyway, so we close at 9.05. So one night, last two weeks ago, a gentleman came to the door at I don't know, 9.08, 9.09, 10, you know, a few minutes after the time after. But when this is clear and our work is clear in the culture, we had a hostess that was working. And instead of just going, we're closed. She was like, oh, there's a guy at the door. Can I let him in? And I was like, I happened to be sitting there. And I was like, yeah, let him in. So she, we figured, she figured out, we figured out one of the bartenders agreed to wait on him. He got to have dinner. He had just flown in from Tennessee. Yeah. He was running late. It happened to be his birthday. He wrote me a nice email. He couldn't stop saying how, you know, so basically for that one tiny thing, we made a customer for life. Yeah, and an applicant. All about beliefs, right. So the common belief is bummer for the customer. He shouldn't have been late. It's not our fault. We're going to go home. But a conversation took place with the line cooks. Can we let him in? Yes, of course, bring him in. Bartender says, yeah, I'll take care of him. He's super happy. I would imagine he tipped very well. He's He already emailed He's been, as I've been in sales for 40 years, he said, this never happens. Wow. Everybody finds a way to say no. You found a way to say yes. So now, I don't know, seems like really good marketing to me. There's a salesman traveling the country who's going to tell this story over and over again about us. What, like, if you hold on to that, Ari, and we yeah. talk a bit about, like, you know, we talked a bit about, you know, there's something we create together. So how do you then, like, if you should get, like, some quick practical advice? Because there's a lot in the book. There's lots of practical also in yeah. the, the pamphlet. If you go for that, the yep. exercise you can do with your team. But, like, if we were to do, like, any of your favorite exercises, what would they be to get started? You know, because you have to start somewhere. Yeah, well... I think just reading it already is going to start to impact people. Most of us 
me included, before I did this work, have no clue we even have beliefs. We don't understand how our beliefs are altering our experience of what's going on. We don't understand how this is playing out. So even just learning about it, not exaggerating, is going to change the way you perceive everything. <laughs> so that's a start. There's an exercise at the end of the first essay that's called This I Believe, based on the 1951 American radio show called This I Believe with Edward R. Murrow. And it's a super simple exercise that you've done the visioning work with the hot pen. It's the same thing, but applied to beliefs. And it works just like the visioning works. Is it perfect? No, of course not. Nothing's perfect. But in three minutes of free writing, nonstop, listing what you believe about anything, it's fascinating what will come up. Yeah, and I think also it's a very simple exercise as well, because I think what I really liked was what you mentioned before as well. It's not just what you believe, it's also what you're not believing in, and actually when your yeah. beliefs is placed in positive and negative yeah. in the world you're in. Yeah, well, that's a big piece of this was my learning. And so, as you know, from reading all this stuff, like I, I like systems that are simple to understand, but that don't demean complexity. Yeah. Right. So a lot of systems are designed to make things simple, but they don't allow for complexity. Customers don't always show up on time. Right. So we create what we call in those cases, organizational recipes that allow for people, the cook, so to speak, to adapt to the ecosystem, to adapt to the ingredients, to adapt to the weather, to what's going on and do the right thing. So knowing what you believe, this really helps. I started to look at beliefs. Remember, they're the root system. I started to look at beliefs in three broad categories, positive, which you just mentioned, mm -hmm. neutral and negative. Right. Yeah. It's a simple model within each positive, neutral or negative. You might have thousands of examples, but the point is that it's a broad framework. If beliefs are the root system and you hold a negative belief about your significant other, about your boss, about society, how's it going to go? If beliefs are the root system, what will come up above the surface? Negative outcomes. It's the only way it can go. So one of my huge learnings was, it's impossible to get positive outcomes from negative beliefs. It's impossible. Now you can create action. You can get people fired. You can get in big arguments, or if you're Putin, you can go to war, but you can't create a healthy, holistic existence out of negative beliefs. Now that's not to say there's no problems because there's a plethora of them, but you can have positive beliefs about a problem. Like we can do the work on this and we can make a positive difference. Let's get going. Or we could have negative beliefs. It's Michael's fault. There's nothing I can do. They're jerks. It's hopeless, whatever. And out of those negative beliefs, nothing good will come. It's quite interesting, Ari, because one of the things as I was, you know, it is often with books, you read them once or yeah. you, I often start somewhere and then I jump around and yeah. then at some point I read the whole book and then yeah. I'll come back and read it more structural. And one of the things I was thinking about as well, what I saw, I was a blocker to something I'm involved in is that I started to check in on my beliefs yeah. and especially how I saw specific people acting their behavior Yep. different situation i was like I, I almost see this tape that's been going for a while i was not aware of it because it's a belief yeah. yep that i actually think they were doing it wrong but yep. in principle i've actually never put it in front of them or really challenged them or actually talked about how do you actually believe in these things we do so how do you do that recheck with yourself because i think lots of leaders has this you know yeah well you, about you the employees that's not performing for example yeah well here's the thing there's a bunch, of course, in a good way, each of these nice questions leads to 53 different answers. But here's one thing I figured, I realized you can't make anybody change their beliefs. So when I share the statement of beliefs, I don't ask them to change their beliefs. I just ask them to act at work mm. based on these beliefs. You can now, ultimately, it's very painful to go to work in a place that you don't generally share the beliefs with. Yeah. However, 
if you can pull it off, it's none of my business what you do, like I said, when you leave work, right? So these things are going on all the time. It's just the way it is. How do I check in on it? One is journaling, which you held up the Managing Ourselves book. Because that leads me to every morning reflecting, even if for a few minutes, on how it's going. So now that I've spent 10 years or eight years or whatever working with this, it's one of the first things I think about. Just like if you just started cooking and you don't know anything about cooking, you don't even know where to start. There's people listening to this that have been cooking professionally for decades. If something doesn't go right, they immediately run through a checklist in their head. Did I add the salt yeah. too soon? Did I add too much salt? Was the pan too hot? Was the meat too cold when it went in the pan? Like they just, you know, they've worked on this for a long time. And so once this becomes an integral piece of the culture, then the people who've worked here for a while, they just go to it immediately. They don't even know they're doing it almost. But how do I know? Because the word, the phrase, I, my belief is X or I believe Y comes up all the time now, which it didn't used to. What did they used to say? People regularly would say, I think. Now you might say, what's the difference? And I'm going to suggest it's pretty different because when I say I think this, it's already putting up the beginnings of an argument. Yeah. Not, not always, but in a conflictual, difficult situation, when I say I believe something, it allows you, I would suggest as the other person, a lot more space to back up and really reflect, even if it's for 30 seconds, on what you believe. So over time, it starts to shape you. And these are the roots, right? So for people who've been engaged with this work, and I work with some of them for two or three years, it's already the root system is quite deep. Have we all gotten rid of all the negative beliefs or the weeds? No, there, there exist everywhere. <clears throat> but if a weed, we've all pulled weeds, probably even I, as a city kid who lives with a farmer, I've pulled weeds. So if you find a little tiny weed, it's super easy to pull it out, right? So if you got a new belief yesterday and you realize it's negative, it's not hard to stop. But going back to Vladimir Putin, like if you've been raised to believe that Russia is better than everybody, if you've been raised to believe that positive world existence is based entirely on the health of Russia, if you believe that admitting failure is a sign of complete weakness, if you believe that strong leaders can never show vulnerability, like et cetera, it's like everybody listening to this knows what Vladimir Putin should do. Even Vladimir Putin, I would forecast, knows what Vladimir Putin should do. But there's so many beliefs that he has that he can't just say what we all know he needs to say. Oh, my God, I don't know what I was thinking. I feel terrible. We've caused so much destruction. This is horrific. Let's start working on making it better. I'm sorry that this happened. But... A leader in Russian, I studied Russian history. The leaders don't apologize. Because if he does that, he's going to be gone. Why? Because mm. the culture won't tolerate a leader that's fallible, vulnerable, admits failure, etc. So he basically needs to decide between the belief that he has or giving up everything that he has. At least that's the belief system I'm projecting onto him. And then remember that our like root systems in nature don't grow straight up and down. Right. And no, they, they move. Yeah. Around. They're all intertangled. So yeah. my beliefs about my father are tied to my beliefs about strength or whatever. So if I change, if he changes his belief about Ukraine, it also requires changing all his beliefs about Russian history. It changes his beliefs about his father, whatever. I don't know. You know, they're all intertwined down there. And so it's not as simple as just, oh, take this one out. It's not software. Like if I change the software on my computer, it will run differently to immediately afterwards. Yeah. Telling you to change the belief isn't going to change the belief because there's 40 years of root system. 
Yeah, I think that the changing the software is a really good analogy is what you often think in organization when you want to do cultural changes that we're just going to do this and then everything changed and you talk about this takes time. Yeah. And the, yeah, and the, that's Bo's question about the ecosystem is yeah. when people use the metaphor of a, the brain as a computer, it leads you to believe incorrectly that we could just drop in, you know, download this and then it's awesome. We just use this new program. But if you understand it as an ecosystem, like nobody goes, Michael, here's our farm. We've been farming with chemicals for 40 years. I want you to have this running well and organic in three weeks. Even if they gave you an unlimited budget, I don't think you could do it. Like it's just not going to happen because it takes a long time to change an ecosystem in nature. And organizations are much more like ecosystems in nature than they are like computers. Yeah, and I guess that's probably for another conversation, but that's probably why we also have challenges in many organizations is because we believe they are like a computer sometimes, yes. not an ecosystem. Yes, and you will follow the cycle and then you'll be mad at everybody for not behaving immediately yeah. the way you want, which will then lead them to be frustrated and not do good work, which will just lead you to look for another software. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it won't work. It won't work. There's one more question I would like yeah. to take from one of the the audience and actually also a very good friend of yours who's already been mentioned in your book. And you think actually you made an intro to Sean Eskinosi from yeah. Eskinosi Chocolate, incredible company. Yes. Also been on the show, it's going to come again. And actually we talked together a couple of weeks ago and he said, I want to ask Harry one thing, you know, because he's really taking the vision, believes in the vision work you do at Singerman's and taking that into his business, but also yeah. out to the farmers and actually yes. been doing visioning work with kids yes. in Africa. Yes, six just, he was just there. He might still be there. He was just there last week. Uh, I think he's back because he sent me the report we're going to be talking about here yeah. on the show and why it's important to do these things and go and visit. And, yeah. But 6,000 young kids have written their own vision of greatness. And that's really inspired from the work you do at Singerman's and the writing you've been doing. Yeah. And he wanted to ask you, that how do it makes you feel that actually you have impacted so many people so far away from your day-to-day -day life in Ann Arbor? Well, it makes me feel good. I, I think it's amazing what he does. I also, in honest humility, try to always know. I know, like, I didn't make up the visioning. It's all learned from other people. And so I we learned it here, as you know, from the books, from Stash Kazmierski and Stash learned it from Ron Lippett and Ron Lippett, you know, so... This is a belief, though, right? So the belief in a self-made person is a big part of the American, at least, mythology. Probably the Western. like, But the more holistic ecosystem understanding is none of us did it on our own. So, yes, it makes me feel good that he's using that. But it also makes me feel good that a little kid had a great meal at the deli or... You know, so they're all important. And I try to remember what's tr I believe to be true, which is that we're all we've all benefited from the work of others. I don't know how to make a computer. The fact that we're even able to sit here and talk is a credit to people you and I will never meet and never know about. Right. So it's only because of Ron Lippett and who knows who taught Ron Lippett. And it's only because of Stash and it's only because of you know, me working with Paul and us being willing to embrace this. And then Maggie from Zing Train wanting to start Zing Train. And then the writing group I was in that helped me learn how to write better. And my therapist that helped me figure out how to live a better life. And, you know, so it's like thousands of people have mm. come together across space, time and geography to create what Sean did. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a very beautiful thing. What is if people want to know more about this, Ari? Yes. Where the where's the best place to go and start if you maybe feel it's a bit overwhelming to to start with the book? Yep. Well, there's your podcast is a good place. There's pamphlets, of course, which you know. So the books, because this is a big book, the book, but all the books are broken out into individual essays that people can buy as a pamphlet. Being it my, we didn't talk about it, but my anarchism when you go back to 1900 that i think pamphlets were social media yeah. uh, and it's how ideas were conveyed quickly and inexpensively across communities 
So people can do that. And then a lot of your listeners are going to be in Europe and there's PDFs they can download of those. So I think just reading secret number 40, which is about beliefs or a couple of those would be a good place to start down at the bottom of the Zingerman's press website. We have bundles that we put together that people can look at. There's one about beliefs and it includes the statement of beliefs and all the work on that, which isn't in the book because it didn't happen until afterwards. And then the e-news, which you'll put the link into, and then that has a sign up at the bottom of it. And it also has the archive link at the bottom of it so people can look back. And then last but not least, my email is ari at com, and people can just email me. Yeah, and you will answer, I can tell. But you're very well, because you know what? I don't have negative beliefs about email. Hmm. Like a lot of people have very negative beliefs about email, and then it's very painful. And they spend yeah. more time complaining about email than it takes to answer them. Yeah. <laughs> That was a very good one to end on here on beliefs, <laughs> because you're absolutely right. Because also lots of people have to believe it has to be zero. And it doesn't. I, I let go of that a long time ago. Yeah, because the world doesn't stop; it continues. But with that said, Ari, this has been an absolutely incredible, you know, overview of the work on beliefs. I hope it's inspired people out there, and people can know where to go. And it seems like we'll potentially touch on this and much else in in the in the future as well so thank you again ari for taking the time and coming on for a third time sharing your oh yeah learnings. I'm, i'm more than happy to do it i you i know you've done in practice personally and then on the conversation in the conversations talked about the visioning which has been huge for us and i really believe that the belief work will be or as impactful on organizations and mm. on people lives as the visioning. It's just that we're only a few years into it. And then also there's a new pamphlet out on our food philosophy, which is a yep. lot about beliefs. And so in the food world, that might be particularly interesting. It's not only about beliefs, but it's about how our philosophy, how important it is. And this is something I also, like many of these subjects, knew nothing about philosophy at all, but I now see why it matters and how impactful it is. So If we do a fourth one, maybe we'll do it on that. Yeah, that's a very good one. Philosophy is a very interesting subject in business right now with all the conundrums people has to make decisions yeah. about. Yep. And that, that hostess who let the customer in that basically was acting on our philosophy. Ari, we will come back to that. Thank you again. Power and energy you. to you and the team at Singerman's and all the great work you do. And we will be in touch very soon. I appreciate you and I appreciate everybody listening and I look forward to more more good conversation to come. I really appreciate that you're listening in. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share with others, rate or give a review or subscribe to one of our channels. Which all can be done via the website hospitalitymavericks.com. I believe that reading the right books is the key to become a better leader. So I've helped you with a curated list of some of the best books to improve yourself, others, and the organization. Find them on hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to Biz Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their socials at bitsimply or bitsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at podcast at bitsimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer from the podcast Collective. If you have any ideas and feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be Maverick.